0: Hey everyone, it's Erin. I hope you are all having a wonderful holiday season. I wanted to give you a quick introduction to this episode. While I was researching and then writing the script for this episode, a person very close to me was going through some major health issues, so my mind and heart was with them rather than devoting myself fully to this podcast. This episode seems a bit disjointed to me and there was a lot of stuff I didn't get to focus on and points I neglected to make. But I wanted to go ahead and put it out there because it's been a minute or two since the last episode. Rest assured, I will have some new episodes up shortly with my mind and heart 100% of the game. Until then, please enjoy this episode. My name is Aaron Lasley. I've traveled many different roads in my life. I've been a law enforcement officer and first responder in the United States Coast Guard. I've worked in a couple of psychiatric hospitals, but now I'm a professional historian and podcaster. I've also had an interest in true crime for most of my life. In this podcast, I study some of the most notorious crimes through the lens of a historian and analyze what may have inspired criminals investigators, and even society during the commission of those crimes and investigations. Join me as we look into the history behind the crime. Hello friends. Welcome back to another episode of the history behind the crime. I am so happy to be with you here today. Uh, So last week I had my birthday and I turned the big 4-0. My fantastic neighbors allowed me to host a special game night at my place, which was awesome. I don't normally entertain, but I figured since the apartment was already clean, why not, right? So as I I wrote this part of the script, I, I took a few moments to take stock of my life so far uh, since they say it's all downhill from here, which I have a hard time believing because I already wake up injured, uh, my back and my knee constantly hurt, and I already have a hard time hearing. Anyhow, I think it's funny how you think your life is going to turn out, and so far, it's nothing as I imagine it would have been when I was a teenager. As a teen, I thought... I would get a degree in criminal justice and forensic psychology and spend my life studying and profiling the bad guys in the world. I thought I'd be published, happily married, and kids, and you know, all that jazz. Instead, I'm just published. And you know what? That's okay. I've had a spectacular life so far, and the good times definitely outweighed the bad. I am blessed with a few true good friends, a great, and you know what? Not that all dysfunctional family, aside from my sister who feeds my, my true crime wardrobe. I have a brilliant career where I get to work with real heroes every day. And I have two of the best dogs in the world. I've been on some wild adventures. I've saved lives, served my country and have met awesome people including some of my true crime heroes. I can only hope the next 40 years will be as blessed as the first. Oh, so thank you to all those people who have stuck by my side for the last 40 years and welcome all you friends in waiting. I look forward to meeting you. Speaking of dreaming about being a profiler when I was a teen, this episode, I want to dive into the history behind criminal profiling, or what the FBI calls criminal investigative analysis. I also want to talk a little bit about myself. Uh, When I was about 13, I watched this movie called Silence of the Lambs. Have have any of you heard of this movie? Oh, yeah, yeah, probably all of you. Cool. I wanted to be Clary Starlink, only without the West Virginia accent. I'll keep my Okie accent. Thank you. This was around the same time my my mom told me the story about Ted Bundy. And naturally, as a pretty strange kid, I started to read true crime and took an AP psychology course in high school. It was my goal to get a degree in criminal justice, become a local cop somewhere, get my psychology degree... And then joined the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit as a profiler. And to be honest, I may have watched too much of the TV show The Profiler back then too. But then 9-11 happened. And that changed a lot of people's destinies, including my own. By the time my active duty service ended and I finally got back into college, my focus had already shifted to history. But I was still interested in psychology. So I supplemented my history courses with psychology and I'm kind of surprised I'm only a few credit hours away from a BA in psychology and may need to finish that up one day. One day, uh, in one of my university psych courses, my idiot professor decided to bring to class one of her clients so we could try to understand why he did some of the things he did. The man was a convicted serial rapist, and the professor didn't put any safeguards in place to protect her students. I am still a bit salty about that event. We spent an hour and a half listening to this asswipe's bullshit, and later we all agreed that any regret he showed was not for his victims, but regret that he got caught. Just listening to that horrible man made me realize I was right to pursue history because I could not spend my life around people like that. Of course, that didn't stop me from watching, reading, or researching true crime. I just didn't want monsters like that personally touching my life. I still have quite a fascination with profiling because I'm very much interested in how the blending of psychology and law enforcement experience can help paint a better picture of an offender and then catch them. And a lot of you know that sometimes I take these cross-country road trips and fill a lot of that time with true crime podcasts and audiobooks. I also listen to these same audiobooks and podcasts right before I go to sleep and uh, when I'm knitting too. My favorite books are written by former FBI profiler, John Douglas, co-authored with Mark Olshanker. Of course, my absolute favorite is, and probably always will be, Mindhunter, followed closely by The Killer Across the Table. John Douglas' writing is a bit tongue-in-cheek sometimes, and though some of the cases he presents are horrible, he and Mark Olshaker present them in a way you can almost Stomach. Robert Ressler's book, Whoever Fights Monsters, which takes you through a lot of the cases and the beginnings of the BAU, is a little bit harder to manage. It's a brilliant and insightful book, but Wrestler doesn't pull any punches. I listened to Whoever Fights Monsters while driving through Oregon, and halfway through Idaho, I had to turn it off and listen to Disney music for the next few hours. It's a great book, don't get me wrong but don't read it if you have a tender heart. This all brings me to Ann Burgess. With John Douglas and Robert Ressler, she wrote Sexual Homicide, Patterns and Motives, which gives a very good introductory tool into the minds of sexual serial killers. This one did keep me up for a few nights. Her newest book, A Killer by Design, is gives us a glimpse at the beginnings of the BAU through her eyes, and I read that entire book in two settings. Oh, it was it was good. The reason why I bring up Douglas, Ressler, and Burgess is because they are the three trailblazers within the FBI's BAU. While they are not the first in their fields, they are definitely the ones who took up the idea of profiling and ran with it. The three characters in the Netflix series Mindhunter are also based on them, very loosely. But we'll get more into them in a bit. Now, let's jump into the history. I'm not going to take you on a too wild ride into the past and start this off with going all the way back to antiquity, which I've done in the last couple of episodes. I'm going to start off in the Victorian era this time. Certainly, criminal profiling can be traced further back than that. In fact, it can be traced all the way back to the Inquisition, when the Inquisitors tried to profile who could and could not be a heretic. But as a historian, I don't put a lot of stock into those early investigative tools for, well, obvious reasons. While criminal profiling has been around for as long as law enforcement itself, we didn't really start to recognize the study until a guy named Jack got happy with a knife in London in the 1880s. Yep, we're going right back to Jack the Ripper again. During the investigations, two London physicians, George Phillips and Thomas Bond, assisted Scotland Yard with the examination and autopsies of the victims. From these autopsies and crime scene evidence, Phillips and Bond began to theorize what kind of man Jack could be. After the autopsy of Mary Kelly, Jack's last victim, Bond made some pretty interesting notes not usually seen in physician reports at the time. He noted elements of misogyny and rage coupled with sexual nature of the murder. Later on, Jack's killings would be known as lust murders or sexual homicide. Phillips and Bond reconstructed the murders to interpret behavioral patterns and came up with the following... All five of the murders were committed by a man who was physically strong, composed, and daring. He would be middle-aged, quiet and harmless in his appearance, neatly attired, but wears a cape or cloak after the murders to hide bloodstains on his clothes. He would be a loner with no real occupation because he is eccentric and mentally unstable. Bond is quoted as saying the murderer is a man of solitary habits, subject to periodic attacks of homicidal and erotic mania, and the character of the mutilations, possibly indicating satirisis, which is a fancy way of saying like hypersexuality. Bond was also opposed to Scotland Yard's theory that the killer was a doctor or had medical training. Bond believed Jack possessed no medical training or knowledge of anatomy Bond stated the gaping wounds of the victims were not consistent with training of a medical expert or even, quote, even the technical knowledge of a butcher or horse slaughterer. Back in the 1880s, Bond and Phillips' observations probably weren't all that respected by the investigative authorities, but today we see nuggets of true criminal profiling within their theory. Bond and Phillips took what they had learned from other criminal investigations and made an educated guess on the kind of man Jack was, and their profile mirrors what we see in sexually motivated killers today. Most criminal profiling takes place before a killer is apprehended. Profiling is used to navigate through the list of suspects and focus in on a particular offender. However... Profiling has been used on criminals to gauge how they would react to an event, used during interrogations to get a confession, and by prosecutors when questioning a defendant on the stand. One of the best examples of this in early profiling was Walter C. Langer's profile on Adolf Hitler, the ultimate douchebag. Langer was a Harvard-educated psychoanalysis with German roots who studied under Anna Freud in Austria and hung out with Anna's father, Sigmund Freud. While in Austria, Langer also helped Jewish scientists and anti-Nazi activists escape into neutral Switzerland. He sometimes even drove them to the border himself, which was so incredibly dangerous. This is one of the reasons the U.S. Office of Strategic Services, also known as the OSS, and the precursor to the CIA, approached Langer in 1943. The OSS asked Langer to psychoanalyze and to create a profile on Hitler, mainly because they wanted to know how Hitler would react when Germany lost the war. Using speeches, the trash novel Mein Kampf, in interviews with people who knew Hitler, Langer developed a 135-page profile of the Emperor of Doucherie. Now, while the OSS claimed the profile wasn't laced with propaganda, some of it is slightly questionable, but I'm willing to give the report a pass considering the heinous nature of the subject. Langer came up with the following. While Hitler was meticulous conventional, and even prudish about his appearance and body, he did not exercise. However, the man was in good health and unlikely to die from natural causes anytime soon. Langer believed Hitler's mental health was deteriorating, given his manic phases and extreme fears of syphilis, germs, and even moonlight, which is called selenophobia. I actually had to look that one up. Hitler Hated, learned, and privileged people. But enjoyed classical music and Richard Wagner's operas. So it sounds like Hitler was envious of the intelligentsia, but wasn't smart enough to be one of them. Langer concluded, Hitler probably had an Oedipal complex. Yep, he wanted to get with his mommy. And had strong streaks of sadism. No shit. It was possible, Langer went on, That Hitler loved pornography, dabbled in homosexual relationships, and derived sexual satisfaction from having women urinate and defecate on him. Gross. Langer diagnosed Hitler as a probable neurotic psychopath, which is not a big stretch of the imagination there, or perhaps bordering on schizophrenia, which somehow I highly doubt. Because of Hitler's declining mental health, Langer wrote, his psychological structures might collapse in the face of imminent defeat and he would likely commit suicide or order somebody to kill him. You know, I would say Langer's profile was pretty much on the nose considering all the things that came out about Hitler after the war had ended and the fact that Hitler killed himself rather than face defeat. Langer's profile eventually inspired U.S. presidents to request profiles on foreign leaders from the CIA and use them before important summits and when creating foreign policy. One early case that made a lot of people in law enforcement step back and go, hmm, was that of New York's Mad Bomber. On November 16, 1940, a crude pipe bomb was discovered at the Con Edison power plant in Manhattan. Fortunately, it was a dud. But a year later, in 1941, another bomb was found a few blocks away from Con Ed. It too was a dud. Though both devices didn't explode, police were still concerned. After the US's entrance into World War II, the bomber sent the police a letter and promised. He wouldn't plant any more bombs during the war, you know, out of patriotism, but promised Con Ed would pay. While the bomber kept his word, he did continue to send letters to the police, Con Ed, and to the newspapers. The bomber kept his promise until 1951, and in between then and 1956, he planted 33 bombs in public buildings in New York. 22 of which exploded and injured 15 people. When 1956 rolled around, the police were getting pretty frustrated that they couldn't catch this guy and approached psychiatrist Dr. James A. Brussel, who was also the New York assistant commissioner of mental hygiene. Dr. Brussel studied crime scene photos and the letters the bomber wrote and came up with a profile of the offender. He would be unmarried, middle-aged, heavy-set man who was also neat and tidy. He would probably live with a sibling and would be a skilled mechanic from Connecticut. Probably Roman Catholic immigrant who had an obsessional love for his mother. They all had mommy issues. Obviously, this man would have a personal vendetta against Con Ed. One more thing, you know, just for shits and giggles. The offender would be wearing a double-breasted suit, fully buttoned, when he was finally apprehended by police. Unlike our two doctor friends during the Ripper investigation, police took Dr. Brussel seriously and used the profile to catch their bomber. And they did. They found middle-aged George Metesky of Waterbury, Connecticut. George was a heavy-set former employee of Con Ed, a skilled mechanic, a foreign-born Roman Catholic who lived with two of his sisters. When police found George at his home, he wasn't quite dressed, but when he came out of his room after given permission to dress, he was wearing a double-breasted suit, fully buttoned. Though George did confess to the bombings, a judge declared him unfit mentally to stand trial was committed to the Madawan Hospital for the Criminally Insane. He was released in 1974 and died in Waterbury at the age of 90 in 1994. Dr. Brussels went on to assist the police in several other criminal investigations, including the Boston Strangler. This all leads up to the 1970s, the FBI, and the Golden Age of Serial Killers. I know some of you have been asking, if offender profiling was so great, why didn't the FBI pick, on, pick up on it before the 1970s? We can blame Jagger Hoover for that. Hoover was a straight-laced, and I use the word straight very loosely with this man, and a no-nonsense kind of guy. He was a facts, just the facts man who didn't put a lot of stock into all that psychology mambo-jumbo stuff. He liked his agents to be white, men, dressed in black suits and ties, and have degrees in law or accounting. When Hoover kicked the bucket in 1972, the FBI began to loosen up just slightly enough for two agents to form the Behavioral Science Unit, Agents Patrick Mullaney and Howard Teetan are pretty much what you expect from a profile team. One had a psychology and history degree, and the other one had deep law enforcement experience. Mullaney was more of the clinical and scholarly agent, while Teton had spent some of the 1960s testing his profiling theories and practices. In 1970, Teetan provided his first profiling as stabbing death, which proved accurate. That year, he teamed up with Mulaney, and together they created created a criminal psychology program at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia. This program taught officers and agents behavioral analysis as an investigative tool. Law enforcement used these tools and lessons in investigations and hostage negotiations. For two years, Teton and Mulaney built the foundation of the BSU and were successful in aiding police in the kidnapping case of a seven year old girl. In June 1973, Susan Yeager was kidnapped while on a family camping trip in Montana. Despite many leads, the case stalled and police requested the assistance of the FBI. Teton and Mulaney formed a profile of the suspect to help authorities weed through the suspects they already had. One suspect was David meerhoffer Though Mirhoeffer had passed a polygraph test, Teton and Mullaney were convinced the man was a psychopath. meerhoffer was eventually arrested after other investigative leads, and he confessed to killing Susan, two other girls, and a woman. Meerhoffer hung himself in in his jail cell four hours after the confession. Tina and Mulaney's psychological profile would be the first time in U.S. history an FBI profile was used to investigate a serial killer. In their work, Teton, the criminologist would present the facts of the case and Mulaney would connect the killer's personality to certain aspects of the crime scene. However, They knew in order to create an accurate profile, they needed all the evidence from the crime and it was investigators, not profilers, who caught the criminal. Mulaney said, psychological profiling is the systematic review of every element of a crime. It is best served when all of the material is present for review and sufficient time has elapsed to allow investigators to gather all the evidence possible. In short, psychological profiles provide an investigative tool, but does not replace the detective. I like to say I'm a profiling hipster. I liked profiling before it was cool. You know, before Criminal Minds and Mindhunter, but that's only because I'm a nerdy freak. I think most people who have an interest in true crime have followed criminal psychology profiling for a while now, and we were just so overjoyed when in the last few years, we welcomed a whole, a whole new group of freaks to our family after the Netflix show Mindhunter blew everyone's minds. Now, it's pretty acceptable to talk about Ed Kempler and his exploits in public. Okay, yeah, maybe not the thing he did with his mother's head, but, you know, anyway. The show gave some a peek into the three dynamos that took profiling and pretty much codified it. It also educated its watchers that profiling is not just purely a guessing game, but there's some real psychology and criminology behind it. In 1976, agents Robert Ressler and John Douglas traveled around the country conducting road schools for various police departments. This was kind of like the criminal psychology class taught at the academy, but brought to police departments around the country. While today police are more informed about psychology, M.O.s, and signatures and the like, in the 1970s, there were still many law enforcement agencies who were just a touch behind the curve, mostly because psychology was a relatively young field of study. Wrestler and Douglas try to close that gap. Once Wrestler and Douglas gained the locals' trust, some detectives started bringing cases to them, which gave them an opportunity to hone their profiling skills. Traveling around the country also gave them the opportunity to interview people you and I would never want to meet in an alley, dark or otherwise. I'm sure this story sounds familiar to those of you who watched Mindhunter. It should. Since the show was based on John Douglas's book of the same name. In one town, a detective recommended wrestler and Douglas go talk to a man locked up in the California State Prison in Vacaville. The man had killed his grandparents, mother, and several women and loved talking to the police. In fact, you couldn't get the man to shut up. So, Restler and Douglas went to talk to Ed Kempler, the co ed killer. What was really interesting about Kempler is that Kempler knew something was wrong with him and he had a very good insight about himself. Over the course of several interviews, he told the two agents when he started to have fantasies about killing, why he killed his grandparents and how he felt about it, how he practiced and then lured young women into his car and how those killings were a substitute for wanting to kill his own mother which he eventually did before he turned himself into authorities. He gave Ressler and Douglas tips on how to interview other criminals like him. He was a wealth of information that opened new insights into the minds of killers. Ressler, Douglas, and other agents went on to interview 36 other offenders, including Charles Manson, Richard Speck, Ted Bundy, Sirhan Sirhan, John Wayne Gacy, Sarah Jane Moore, and David Berkowitz. The more they interviewed killers, the more they were able to codify criminals and their misdeeds. The BSU brought in talented agents such as Roy Hazelwood, who was a pioneer of of profiling sexual predators, and Dr. Ann Burgess, a trauma nurse who counseled rape survivors and knew a great bit about victimology. Together, they made up the profiling dream team and were able to classify and profile killers. You've heard the terms before, disorganized versus organized, lust killer, and even serial killer or spree killer. These were terms not used before, and this early team of profilers helped coin them. Through these interviews, the FBI was able to gather knowledge about offenders' motives, their planning and preparation, learn more details about their crimes and how they disposed of evidence, including weapons and bodies. It gave the FBI insight that few people ever gained before. The team got their chance at really putting their new knowledge and skills to the test in Atlanta to help catch a killer murdering black children. The show Mindhunter did give us a glimpse of what the team did from forming a profile, trying to lure the offender to a memorial service and a benefit concert, to even staking out bridges in the hope of catching the killer dumping a body. When Wayne Williams was brought to trial, it was Douglas who gave the prosecutor a few tips of how to make Williams lose his cool on the stand. It was all done through the use of profiling. Since then, the BSU, now known as the Behavioral Analysis Unit or BAU, has been called in on thousands of cases ranging from kidnappings, assassinations, bombings, bank robbers, terrorism, and of course, serial killings. One that stands out to me was that of the murder of 12 year old Mary Frances Stoner in Georgia. In 1979, Mary didn't come home from school one day, and her body was discovered in a wooded area the next day. She had been raped and bludgeoned to death by a rock found at the crime scene. Douglas and his team were called in not only to get a profile, but to stage the interrogation after the offender was apprehended. The following is from Douglas's book, Mindhunter. Quote, When investigators interrogate a suspect. A suspect in a crime, they have to pay careful attention to the process. Months or years of work on a case can be lost when just one interrogation is run without forethought and preparation. I've conducted a few interrogations. Profilers are sometimes called upon to do this, but most often their job is to help select and prepare investigators from local law enforcement or state or federal agencies, often other FBI agents to question the suspect. By formulating an approach that zeroes in on the suspect's weakness, profilers augment the investigator's knowledge of the case with a script and setting for the interrogation, what I call staging. After profilers came in, police arrested Daryl Jean DeVere, who had been trimming trees near Mary's home when she disappeared. The FBI team assisted police in setting up the interrogation. Yes, some of this was in the show, but Douglas gives us more detail in his book. Police brought in thick paper files with DeVere's name on it, created an atmosphere where DeVere's could relax, and finally put the bloody rock in the interrogation room, just within eyesight of DeVere. It was the rock that made DeVere sweat, get nervous, and with just a little bit of finesse from the police, confessed to raping and killing Mary. The rock was DeVere's weak point. As Douglas said, everyone's got a rock. DeVere's was eventually tried, convicted, and executed for Mary's murder. The BSU continued to grow from a handful of agents in the basement of the FBI Academy to profilers placed strategically around various FBI field offices in the United States. Throughout the 1980s, the FBI profilers were busy throughout the U.S. and Canada helping out with criminal cases, including the Green River murders in Seattle, Larry Jean Bell in South Carolina, and the Butcher Baker up in Alaska. Okay, yes, Aaron, we get it. But what is profiling? In this case, profiling is criminal investigative analysis, which is pretty much the investigation of a crime with the hope of identifying the responsible party based on a crime scene analysis, forensic psychology, and behavioral science. It's a combo of law enforcement and forensic psychology and consists of psychological factors such as antisocial personality traits, psychopathologies, behavioral patterns, as well as demographics such as age, race, and geographical location. Yeah, okay, I confess. I ripped that off from someplace, but I neglected to put where in my notes. And we've already talked about profiling is used in three different settings, the investigation phase, the apprehension phase, and the prosecution phase. In the investigation phase, Profilers and investigators determine whether crimes are linked or not, develop a plan to apprehend the offender, and assess the likelihood the offender will escalate or not. And we've all seen something like this on criminal minds. During the apprehension phase, profiling is used to predict where to look for the offender, determine what information should be included in a search warrant, and how the offender will react once caught. During the prosecution phase, Profilers act as experts in court to link crimes based on forensic evidence, connect an alleged perpetrator to a series of crimes, and advise the prosecutor on how they should question the offender when on the stand. These are strategies the early team formed in the technique of profiling. Now, none of this happened without some blowback and criticism from within and outside the FBI. Some psychologists had some misgivings about the scientific solidity of this early profiling because Ressler, Douglas, and other FBI agents were not psychologists and some flaws were found. Psychologists weren't saying it was bad. They were just pointing out some of the holes and more modern profilers agree that early profiling was rough, but the team was right more often than they were wrong. This makes me think of the homicide of Carla Brown, and I'm talking about they were right more times than they were wrong. In 1978, Carla and her fiancé moved in with each other, but shortly after the move-in, Carla's fiancé found her body in the basement of their new home. Carla was found half-naked, her head in a bucket of water with her hands tied behind her back. She had been strangled. After some investigation, the police called in FBI profilers to assist. After reviewing the crime scene photos and evidence, Douglas came up with a very precise profile. He labeled the killer as disorganized and unsophisticated and that the original intent when going into the house was not murder. Douglas believed Carla had spurred the killer's sexual advance and he had lashed out. The killer was a white male, In his late 20s, high school education with some vocational training, he would have an unkept appearance. It was likely the police already spoke to him in that he had even passed a lie detector test. Douglas believed the killer knew Carlo's routine and therefore lived or worked nearby. The killer likely left the area for a while after the murder and would spook easily. Oh, and this one little detail the killer would drive a red or orange Volkswagen. The investigators later arrested John Prant for Carla's murder. Prant was a white male in his late 20s, unkept, high school education. He had been questioned by the police and had even passed a polygraph exam. Prant was one of Carla's neighbors and it was discovered Prant killed Carla after she wouldn't have sex with him. He also drove a red Volkswagen. While obviously there's not a lot of psychology in there, the profile helped police hone in on Prant. This early profiling was a lot of using investigative experience, offender interviews, and interpreting the crime scene victim and evidence rather than relying on psychology. Today, profiling still uses criminology, but also studies and techniques developed by forensic psychologists and psychiatrists. Within the BAU today, FBI agents work side-by-side side with psychologists, and the FBI contracts various universities to study certain criminal phenomenon, such as you know, the link between burglary cases and sexual crimes. That alone makes me think of Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer. Criminal profiling or criminal behavioral behavior analysis has come a long way since the Jack the Ripper case, and while more scientific studies are used within profiling, profiling is still an art that takes a trained and seasoned investigator. While many of us true crime buffs could probably flesh out a decent profile, we would miss the nuances that would be critical in catching the offender, like knowing What kind of car the offender drove? This week I want to bring you another missing person case. Two-year-old Tika Lewis disappeared from a bowling alley in Tacoma, Washington on January 23, 1999. Tika was with her mother and other members of her family that evening. She was last seen playing in the arcade area of the bowling alley and was reported missing around 10.30 p.m. No one reported seeing Tika leave the bowling alley and no primary suspects have been found or named related to her disappearance. No evidence of Tika's disappearance, including her body or clothes, has ever been found and police are hopeful Tika is alive and doesn't even know she was kidnapped. Tacoma police also released information about, the, about a possible vehicle of interest seen speeding away from the bowling alley parking lot shortly after Tika went missing. Witnesses described the vehicle as a late 80s or early 90s maroon or similar color Pontiac Grand Am with tinted windows and a spoiler. In 2020, police reached released a description of a man seen at the bowling alley the night of Tika's disappearance they believe may be connected to the case. Detectives still hope to find and talk with this man after all these years. Officials describe the man as white, between the ages of 30 or 40, about 5 feet 11 inches tall with a husky build. He had wavy brown hair, a thick mustache and pock marks on his face. Police recently released an age progression photo of Tika, who would be in her 20s today and i'll post pictures of tika on instagram if you have any information about the disappearance or location of tika lewis please call crime stoppers of tacoma pierce county at 1-800-222-TIPS t-i-p-s if you feel uncomfortable going directly to the police you can contact me at the history behind the crime at gmail.com or on instagram at the history behind the crime someone out there knows something you may not but you may know people in washington who do share tika's story with them well that sums up another episode of the history behind the crime dear friends I love hearing from you guys, and please email me or message me on Instagram if you have any questions, suggestions, or any personal true crime stories. I would love to hear about them. Don't forget to like and follow the podcast wherever you listen to it, and I'll be back next time with another true crime thriller, or at least a nerdy true crime history story. In any event, do me a favor and take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Bye.